Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hello, everyone. It's CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. On this week's episode, we continued our monthly series with Medical Association of Georgia. We focused the conversation on legal issues around commercial insurance reimbursement for physicians. Former insurance commissioner for the state of Georgia, attorney and expert on the subject, John Oxendine, joined me in the studio to talk about some important things physicians need to know about relating to commercial insurance reimbursement. There are laws that lay out requirements for timeliness of payment and or communications regarding submitted claims that must be adhered to by insurance companies that are really important for doctors to understand. Additionally, there are rules around documentation of assignment of representation that can be the difference between losing five or six figures to insurance company clawback or being able to deny those requests for return of payment for previously delivered care. Here's John talking about assignment of representation and why it's so important to have this documented in the patient's file. Every provider, don't ever treat a patient without an assignment of benefits and make sure it's a good one. You really need that. It is so important to protect your rights. For the ignorant like me, what is the assignment of benefits? It's where the patient says, my my rights, my benefits under my insurance policy in regard to a service you're giving me, I'm going to assign it to you. So the right to payment, the right to appeal a claim, the right to fight the insurance company, anything of that nature, I'm going to give you, my doctor, the rights to pursue this claim and have all of the rights that I have as a patient. And now, do I do that with a document of some sort that I'm acknowledging this? It should be in the, you know, the little clipboard that the new patient gets. Yes. And I know some people have gone <laughs> to electronic, you yeah. know, they're using iPads and stuff. But that, I always recommend it's on that new patient information. You fill it out. And if you're not doing it, you need to get one for your old patients as well. But you should assign your rights and also make sure you've got a statement saying, in addition to an assignment of all my rights, I am going to appoint you, the doctor, or the healthcare practice, whoever you're billing under, as my personal representative for all healthcare issues regarding being paid. So that would allow my either my coder and or my physician, the people within the practice that are dealing with that claim, would allow them, I guess, to then discuss my case and, and go into that. Otherwise, they'll be told, sorry, we don't have, you're not a representative. Is that how that flows? It allows them to discuss it, but it also allows them to go and fight with the carrier, even go to court and sue the carrier if necessary over claims payment issues. Saves me the patient from having to do that. That's right. And patients always happy to support the doctor in getting paid. So, uh, That's why the assignment of benefits is so important. Now, the Georgia state law on assignments is very unique, and this really applies to the out-of-network doctors. Uh, For example, I've heard that Blue Cross lately has had a habit of you're out of network, they send in the check to the patient and not to the doctor. If you have an assignment signed in writing from your patient, and when you send the claim into the carrier, you put them on notice that I have an assignment from that patient, it violates Georgia law for them to send that money straight to the patient. 
I have handled cases for doctors where I've gone to a carrier and, you know, you don't get hired on a $200 case, but it's a surgeon. It's sure. $30,000, $40,000. Right. They have hired me. I've gone to the carrier and said, you paid the patient $40,000 and he took the money and went to Cherokee, North Carolina and, and lost it. And I've actually had that situation. And the carrier has to reprocess the claim, write a new check and pay my client, the doctor. Okay. But you got to make sure you put the provider on notice that you have that assignment So when you submit the claim. As the expert talking to a prospective client, how, did the, how is the best way to handle that? Is there some sort of documentation that they just need to make sure is in, or is there some sort of verbal communication? How do you need to transmit that so that you know that that's on record? Well, you need to send it to them. Um, and the problem is, with the electronic submissions, it depends on how your software is. Sometimes you can add extra documents when you're doing the electronic submissions. Sometimes you can. It depends on the, a lot of the newer software is allowing you to add exhibits and add things. If not, you might actually submit it by paper so you can make sure you have that submission. Some courts have said simply on the Form 1500 check, and I can't remember the box number, but there's a box toward the bottom that says assignment, yes or no. I'm not saying checking that box is is good enough, but I've actually seen some judges indicate it could be, but I like to have more than that. Matter of fact, I even will give, if you reach out to me personally, or if you reach out to MAG, you know, MAG can give it to you. I have a generic form that I'm happy to share to people free of charge, just is a good assignment and appointment of representative form. I mean, my email is J-W-O-L-A-W. That's my initials, J-W-O and the word law, L-A-W, at gmail.com. Okay. Or if you contact Mr. Pomisano or some of the good folks over at the Medical Association of Georgia, they can get a copy. I think they probably got one or two laying around. Stick around. I got the full interview with John Oxendine coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. It's already time again for our monthly series with Medical Association of Georgia. We've been doing that since, I think, last summer. Um, actually, right around September is when I first met Donald Pomisano Jr., and uh, he joined me in the studio, and we started having them come in to talk about a host of different topics that are important and relevant to the physicians around the state of Georgia, as well as to the patients and their outcomes. And today, I'm pleased to have with me in studio John Oxendine. He was the Georgia State Insurance Commissioner from 1990 to 2011, and he's worked closely with MAG and the Georgia's Association of Physicians of Indian Heritage, the AMA, and numerous other healthcare provider organizations. In fact, he's the only insurance commissioner in history to receive the AMA's highest award, the Nathan, Nathan Davis Award, and he created a separate division at the Department of Insurance to help doctors with claims payment issues. And I know that some of the conversations we've been having lately with the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and its effect on contraction of uh, the networks that are being offered to patients, creating these very, very narrow networks around the state and changing uh, what that picture looks like when the end of, uh, when the explanation of benefits comes and oh my gosh there's some out of network charges that I did not expect on my bill and the the challenges that those issues are creating for both physicians and patients alike I'm really pleased John to have you here with us in the studio to talk about how it affects us as it relates to that insurance payment side of things probably draw heavily on your experience as the insurance commissioner and and as a practicing attorney so thanks for taking some time Oh, my pleasure to be here. And so take us through your background a little bit. Obviously, as we explained in the intro here, that you did spend several years 
as the insurance commissioner and how that kind of led you to where you are now? Well, I spent uh, 16 years as insurance commissioner in the state of Georgia, and the office covers a lot of other things. It's insurance commissioner, it's the small consumer credit offices, it's uh, state fire marshal and comptroller general, so it's a lot of different things. But obviously insurance was the main area, and I always said one of the most important things I did was help insurance consumers with problems and making sure they get their claims paid. Well, in the health area, you really can't help the consumer properly without bringing the healthcare provider in, the doc, the physician, or if it's a chiropractor, nurse practitioner, or any other healthcare professional. So we really work closely with doctors and hospitals and clinics because they are the partners and we want to make sure that they get paid. And we gradually led the country, started a entire software program we created in-house of making sure claims were paid promptly. First time in Georgia history, insurance companies were really being fined for not paying claims promptly under the state law, and we issued millions of dollars of fines and actually led the country in that. We also did create that separate division because when a policyholder calls and says, I can't get a health care claim paid, you need one approach to help them. But often the doctor would be calling on behalf of that patient and say, hey, I treated this person. We're having trouble getting the claim paid. So we had special people that were used to talking healthcare language to the docs and could work with their staff, their billing staff, in getting those claims paid and properly addressed. And again, that had never been done. So we really tried to do a few things on the cutting edge. Well, I've only had experience working directly with a single medical practice here in the city, but I can't help but imagine that some of the challenges that our multi-site practice experiences are related to trying to get paid for work that we had already done and care that we had delivered to our patients sometimes weeks ago (laughs) or longer, um, that 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 sort of issue affects our colleagues around the state uh, as it relates to um, not just getting paid for Medicare-related services, but also, in this case, talking to commercial insurers and, and getting paid in a timely fashion. And I learned, as I was preparing for our conversation here, some things that I didn't realize, and I'm really happy to be talking about them. Uh, from what I understand, one of the big overarching components as it relates to health insurance reimbursement for providers has to do with the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And, yes. And, and, or ERISA, as they like to have the acronym for it. Talk about what that means and, and how it applies as it relates to insurance reimbursement. And then we can kind of dig down into some of the issues around that. Yes. Um, ERISA is misunderstood by a lot of people because you have state law that governs a lot of health insurance claims. It governs individual claims where it's just mom and dad buy a policy for their family. And it also covers small businesses, you know, Bob's Auto Garage or something that are fully self-insured. And then you have larger companies that self-insure, and that's where they don't really buy insurance. They kind of do it themselves, and the money comes out of their own corporate treasury. But ERISA was created originally for the large self-insured companies. But, you know, whenever the federal government creates something, it always grows. And now ERISA applies to every single employer-based policy. So the mom-pop business that is fully insured, not self-insured, they go to 
their local insurance agent and buy an insurance policy for their two or three employees. That business is governed jointly by state law, but also governed by the federal law of ERISA. And whenever there's a conflict, the federal law is always going to supersede the state law. So for claims payment purposes, which is what most docs are interested in, ERISA is going to govern every single policy that involves your employer, which is the vast majority of health insurance policies. And there were some elements to that as it relates to the requirements for timeliness of payment that I didn't necessarily realize, given the fact that in many cases it didn't seem to fall <laughs> uh, under what this was talking about. And one of the pieces that I just learned as I was, as I mentioned, preparing for our conversation under ERISA, the health insurance company has to make a decision to pay, deny, or request additional information regarding every claim within 30 days of its receipt. Now, I'd, I didn't realize that was a requirement. And I wonder how often, I don't know if there's statistics out there, but how often they file fall without that. And I guess, I guess for me on that, I, I, I think the, the, the caveat in that, that lets this delay more than just not responding is, as I mentioned, the situation where, oh, the, the type was a little below that line <laughs> there and we couldn't read that. So you're going to have to resubmit that, that, that falls under that. Oh, we communicated yes. to you that you needed to resubmit. So that's how we delay as long as we do that within 30 days. And but. you can't really do that under ERISA. Now, Keep in mind, our discussion today really does not include Medicare or Medicaid, completely different set sure. of rules. And government plans, state health benefit plans, uh, school teachers, city, county employees, federal government employees are not part of ERISA. However, probably the only good thing the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act did, Obamacare, was it adopted the claims procedure regulations and applied it. So now, even though technically those government employee programs are not part of ERISA, for claims payment purposes and how you pay a claim, they have to follow the ERISA rules. So now ERISA is all employers, public, private, everything, at least as far as how you pay a claim. And what it does is it says you get a claim, and this is generally submission of a claim after the service is rendered, which the majority of them are, 30 days, you pay a claim, you deny a claim, you ask for medical records, and asking for medical records doesn't give them another month or two, as they will often tell, okay. you know, the doctor's offices. Let's say on day, you submit a claim, and on day five, they say, oh, we need medical records. It takes you five days to get the medical records to them. All that did was a timeout. It just stopped the clock. So if they waited on the medical records for five days, they only get 35 days to make a decision. So it doesn't give them another month, doesn't give them a big window. It's only the number of days that they were waiting on the doctor to get the medical records in. So it's just more of a timeout. They'll often say, oh, well, we have to get medical records. You know, we get another 30 or 60 days. I know it's shocking, but insurance companies lie sometimes. And I know a lot of the mm-hmm. listeners never heard of that, huh? And they will lie and they'll say all kinds of stuff. But they've got to do that within 30 days. Now, they can get a one-time 15-day extension. But under the law, they actually have to request that. I was going to say they probably do something specific Prior to, to, yeah, they've got to tell you prior to the expiration of 30 days, hey, I need 15 more days and this is why. So this stuff about people waiting around 60, 90 days to get a claim paid, uh, that's illegal. That's clear violation of the law if it's in any type of employer-based policy 
private or government employer? I think that in our experience, it seemed to be more of that situation that I explained to you where we sent it, they acknowledged they got it, but oh, we got to kick it back because of this or that. And it could be the most trivial of things that when you see it, it's like, really? Um, that it's just one of those things that's just kind of built in delay, but it's complying with the letter of the law in terms of the timeliness in which we get that information, but it still delays the the, the payment. Yeah. It still forces you to do double work. And and that's more and more in the Medicare Medicaid thing. They'll they'll kick something back if they if they need that extra time or they need you to correct something again. The most they could ever get is that window that they were waiting. So if they do kick something back to you and it takes you two or three days to fix a flaw in a claim, they only get two or three days more. They're not buying themselves an extra month. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I know you were responsible for, the passage of Georgia's assignment law. Talk about how that impacts this situation. Uh, Yes. Georgia has a very, very, one of the strongest laws in the entire country, and it's something I work very closely with the Medical Association of Georgia on and uh, the AMA. And what it basically says is if you're an out-of-network provider and you get an assignment of benefits from your patient, and by the way, every provider, don't ever treat a patient without an assignment of benefits and make sure it's a good one. Uh, you really need that. It is so important to protect your rights. For the ignorant like me, what is the assignment of benefits? It's where the patient says, my, my rights, my benefits under my insurance policy, in regard to a service you're giving me, I'm going to assign it to you. So the right to payment, the right to appeal a claim, the right to fight the insurance company, anything of that nature, I'm going to give you, my doctor, the rights to pursue this claim and have all of the rights that I have as a patient. And now, do I do that with a document of some sort that I'm acknowledging this? It should be in the, you know, the little clipboard that the new patient gets. Yes. And I know some people go <laughs> to electronic, you yeah. know, they're using iPads and stuff. But that, I always recommend it's on that new patient information. You fill it out. And if you're not doing it, you need to get one for your old patients as well. But you should assign your rights and also make sure you've got a statement saying, in addition to an assignment of all my rights, I am going to appoint you, the doctor, or the healthcare practice, whoever you're billing under, as my personal representative for all healthcare issues regarding being paid. So that would allow my either my coder and or my physician, the people within the practice that are dealing with that claim, would allow them, I guess, to then discuss my case and, and go into that. Otherwise, they'll be told, sorry, we don't have, you're not a representative. Is that how that flows? It allows them to discuss it, but it also allows them to go and fight with the carrier, even go to court and sue the carrier if necessary over claims payment issues. Saves me, the patient, from having to do that. That's right. And patients are always happy to support the doctor in getting paid. So uh, that's why the assignment of benefits is so important. Now, the Georgia state law on assignments is very unique, and this really applies to the out-of-network doctors. Uh, for example, I've heard that Blue Cross lately has had a habit of you're out of network, they send in the check to the patient and not to the doctor. If you have an assignment signed in writing from your patient, and when you send the claim into the carrier, you put them on notice that I have an assignment from that patient. It violates Georgia law for them to send that money straight to the patient. I have handled cases for doctors where I've gone to a carrier, 
And, you know, you don't get hired on a $200 case, but it's a surgeon. It's sure. $30,000, $40,000. Right. They have hired me. I've gone to the carrier and said, you paid the patient $40,000 and he took the money and went to Cherokee, North Carolina and, and lost it. And I've actually had that situation. And the carrier has to reprocess the claim, write a new check and pay my client, the doctor. Okay. But you got to make sure you put the provider on notice that you have that assignment So when you submit the claim. As the expert talking to a prospective client, how, do the, how is the best way to handle that? Is there some sort of documentation that they just need to make sure is in, or is there some sort of verbal communication? How do you need to transmit that so that you know that that's on record? Well, you need to send it to them. Um, and the problem is with the electronic submissions, it depends on how your software is. Sometimes you can add extra documents when you're doing the electronic submissions. Sometimes you can. It depends on the, a lot of the newer software is allowing you to add exhibits and add things. If not, you might actually submit it by paper so you can make sure you have that submission. Some courts have said simply on the Form 1500 check, and I can't remember the no- box number, but there's a box toward the bottom that says assignment, yes or no. I'm not saying checking that box is, is good enough, but I've actually seen some judges indicate it could be, but I like to have more than that. Matter of fact, I even will give, if you reach out to me personally, or if you reach out to MAG, you know, MAG can give it to you. I have a generic form that I'm happy to share to people free of charge, just is a good assignment and appointment of representative form. I mean, my email is J-W-O-L-A-W, that's my initials, J-W-O and the word law, L-A-W, at gmail.com. Okay. Or if you contact Mr. Pomisano or some of the good folks over at the Medical Association of Georgia, they can get a copy. I think they probably got one or two laying around. If not, <laughs> they'll find a way to get it to And you. so this would be basically what we want to have is one of the 30 pieces of paper I have to fill out on my clipboard while I'm sitting yeah. in the waiting room. Okay. Well, and and the reason is so many of the rights, especially under the federal law of ERISA, when I talk about how claims are paid, that federal law dictates how you pay a claim, but the rights don't belong to the doctor. The rights belong to the patient. And that 30-day requirement and all of that is a right that the patient has. So that piece of paper, the patient is given his rights to the doctor. So for that purpose, legally, the doctor is in the shoes of the patient, and now the doctor will have all of those rights under the federal law ERISA. If you don't have that paper, then the rights only belong to the patient and not to the doctor. Former Commissioner of Insurance for Georgia, John Oxendine, joins me in the studio. We've been talking about his expertise as it relates to physicians and reimbursement from commercial insurance companies um, and and how the ERISA law affects all of that and given some great tips on things to be thinking about, checking to make sure you have documentation like the assignment of rights or um, that a patient would have to... Uh, acknowledge that they've given to you as a patient, particularly when we're talking about things like out-of-network, because as you were talking about, John, that can create a situation where, uh, for whatever reason, the, the the insurer may end up sending those out-of-network funds mm-hmm. straight to the patient for some reason. And I would imagine that that's probably something that's been bumping up a little bit lately, given the fact that seemingly since the ACA went into effect a couple of years ago, how those 
narrow networks have really begun emerging and some of the lists upon which a doctor may think he's on a contract, but he's not, or he was contracted with this element of this of this company, but not the one that this particular patient came from. So I would imagine a lot of out-of-network charges are starting to kind of be in play nowadays because it's been a topic yeah. we've talked about a number of times here lately. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of the rules have changed in what is in-network and what is out. <clears throat> Even where some carriers are taking certain mid-level professionals, uh, I know one carrier uh, has said, well, surgical assistants, we're not going to have any of them in-network. Well, I mean, you know, so we, we got the surgeon in network and most surgeons need a surgical assistant. I mean, I'm I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, but it sounds like something important to have there in the room. But they don't want to have the surgical assistant in network. So the surgical assistant's trying to do stuff. I mean, and it just really gets complicated. And so it's when you're looking at this, it's not just a physician. Uh, there are so many of the mid-level providers that are, I mean, physicians can't do a lot of what they do <laughs> without the other healthcare professionals right. with them. And it's a matter of, are they in network too, or how is their billing being done? Something that we see, I think, a lot nowadays, it's probably going to increase as well, both in Medicare as well as in commercial insurance, is the fact that the the payer can come back and request an audit of charts. Uh, obviously, like I say, we see that a whole lot in Medicare as they've been trying to rein in uh, prospective fraud and, and quite frankly, a good measure of real fraud in, in the Medicare payment space. But the same kind of thing can happen if I'm contracted with a third-party commercial insurer. They can also request an audit and Talk about how, how that plays for a physician, things they need to know. And, and then, obviously, I would imagine that if I'm out of network, that might complicate things in some form or fashion as well. Yes, this is really a development that has occurred more after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, Obamacare, as a lot of people call it. Uh, prior to that, insurance companies, whenever they needed money, they pretty well just jacked up their rates. And they're still good at jacking up their rates. I got my renewal notice uh, not long ago. You didn't on, save twenty five hundred dollars. Gee, I didn't. I, I, I guess when the president was talking about that, I, I just wasn't included. But now they've got more people looking at their rates. So the health insurance companies—they're publicly traded, most of them. They've got to keep their profits high. They're looking for other ways to get money. Well, you get some from the consumer. You need someone else to squeeze. You got a doctor on every street corner, perfect people to squeeze. So what they've done, they took people who really used to be fraud investigators and either retrained them or replaced them and brought in auditors. And now they're going around, they're running algorithms to say, oh, well, this procedure is being charged a lot. This test, this procedure, this CPT code, and they're looking for patterns. And they're never going after anything that's going to threaten someone's life. I mean, they're never going to attack chemotherapy or something where someone's going to die. But they look at a lot of a lot of diagnostic stuff. I mean, they'll say, oh, well, that test is diagnostic. Well, yeah, but you're a doctor. If you don't run the test to find out what's happening to the patient and you just guess and guess wrong, that's called malpractice, you know? Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you know, you, you got to do these things. 
Well, what they'll do is they'll identify something where they're paying a lot of money and they'll do an audit and over the last couple of years and they'll come back and say, well, that test or procedure you did, we think it was experimental, it was investigational, it really wasn't covered by the policy and we've paid you about three, 400000 for that test over the last couple of years. Send us a check, please. Oh, and by the way, if you don't send us a check in the next 30 days, we'll just start it's called recoupment or clawback. We'll just well, start. Pleasant terms. I just call it stealing personally. But we're just going to take it out of your future claims. You owe us 400000 in overpayments, as they would call it. They just say, oh, we overpaid you four hundred. They unilaterally decide that. No court did. No judge did. And they're just going to take money and stop paying your claims until they get their $400,000 back. Totally illegal in regard to the patient under ERISA. It's legal under most state laws around the country. It's legal in Georgia. It's legal under your provider agreement, but it's illegal regarding the patient on ERISA. Go backwards, remember what we talked about, that assignment and designation form. If If that patient has assigned their rights to you under ERISA, then you're not standing just as a doctor. You're standing as the representative of that patient. It's illegal. They can't take the money back. Interesting. So if I have got that piece of documentation, that assignment of rights by the patient, mm-hmm. then I'm protected from the clawback or the recoupment measure. Yes. And wow. doctors don't realize it. And and most attorneys don't realize it. And most doctors, they have a healthcare attorney. I'm not a healthcare attorney. A healthcare attorney says, what does the state board say? What can you do under state law? And how do I set up a management of my practice and all that? I don't know those things. I know zero about that. I would be incompetent to give you advice on that. But I do know health insurance payments. Well, the doctor will go to their healthcare attorney. And their healthcare attorney will go look up Georgia law or look at the provider agreement that the doctor signed and say, well, it says they can do that. Okay, I, don't, I guess we don't have a choice. They're not used to dealing with the risk. It's not that they're not a good attorney. It's just, right. it's just like medicine. Doctors pick a little area where they know. I know a guy that's one of the greatest podiatrists in the world. But, you know, Don't go he, into him for heart trouble. Yeah, he's great on feet, yeah. <laughs> but he's not going to cut open your heart. Right. And most heart surgeons don't know how to cut on the foot. Right. Uh, so it, it's the same way with medicine. And they intimidate the doctors. They scare the doctors. I, I took a, 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 a lawyer that worked for a large health insurance company. Uh, she was up north in Pennsylvania, and she, I mean, I, I threatened to turn her into the state bar because she was writing letters to doctors saying, well, you know, this could be fraud and we may have to uh, submit it to the, you know, you know, to the licensing board of sure. your state. Right. And she was scaring the you-know-what out of doctors. And most doctors would probably get that letter and, oh, my God, this sit there and you say, I owe 400000 Well, they'll generally take, you know, they'll you supposedly owe 400 heck, give them a quarter of a million and they'll probably take it. And then the doctor thinks he got a deal. Well, the doctor <laughs> paid a quarter of a million he didn't have to pay. And she backed off a little bit, at least on my clients, because I said, you know, you, but they'll, they'll, they'll threaten fraud. I'll report you to the medical board. It's garbage. 
They just say that. Doctors are, you know, they want to do good. They're, they're scientists. They're learned people. They don't, they don't want to get into this thing about being accused of fraud or being reported to a medical board. That's not going to happen unless they really, really committed fraud, which is once in a blue moon, very rare. But the insurance companies know if they threaten that, it'll scare the doctor. And someone's scared, they get out their checkbook and they start writing a check. And it, it's very profitable. I mean, it's a good scam. It's what it is. It is a, brings in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. You threaten doctors, tell them to write you a check for a few hundred thousand, scare them, and it works. If I threaten 20 doctors and 18 of them get scared and write me a check, that's pretty good, pretty good business model. Now, clearly, uh, as we've elucidated, you're, you're somebody that's very learned in this and very experienced both with your work as a commissioner and then the fact that much of your practice, you're working on this very type of case. So you know specific things that you can look for that would potentially thwart this from being legal or, and mm-hmm. being able to be done. But if, I don't, if I'm not either handy to you or if I'm not fortunate enough to link up with you as my expert, is there, are there some questions that I need to ask my legal representation I would hope that a physician or uh, the practice administration would contact some legal representation before they go stroke and a check for four, five, six, seven figures uh, on a demand like this. But are there some questions that they need to ask to make sure that this legal expert is somebody that really is going to be able to answer this question? Because, I mean, obviously a lot hangs in the balance. Well, you need to go to your lawyer and ask them about it and say, don't just look at state law and don't just look at the contract I signed. Look at federal law because federal law will preempt the state law. Federal law will preempt that contract you sign. And ask them, say, well, I understand there are some rights under ERISA that I can have as the representative of my patient. If your lawyer has no idea what you're talking about, then maybe you need to look around or ask Ask the lawyer to get an ERISA expert. A lot of the clients I get, the majority are directly the doctors calling me, but a lot of them are other attorneys. Healthcare attorneys will call me and say, hey, I heard about you or or my client, the doctor heard about you and asked me to call you. And I work with healthcare attorneys because I'm not going to steal their business because I don't want to be a healthcare attorney. <laughs> you know? right. So... I'm not going to take their business. They're not going to take my business. It's just, it's just like any other doctor bringing in a specialist to fix one thing. The specialist goes back and the regular doctor takes care of everything. It's pretty much the same way. What are we talking about when we, when we talk about pass-through billing and how does that come into play here? Um, pass-through billing is a big issue. And there's one carrier, uh, one of the two top carriers that's been very aggressive around the country of putting in the provider agreements that you can't do pass-through billing. Uh, About half of the states you can do pass-through billing, about half you can't. Pass-through billing is, uh, a laboratory is probably the most common example. I do a test, send it to the laboratory, and instead of the lab billing the insurance company for the test, I, as the doctor, will bill. So it's pass-through. I'm passing through You know, I technically didn't do the test. I I took the sample. I ordered it. The lab ran the test, but I will bill the insurance company. Um, About 20-something states, it's okay. Uh, Georgia is one of those. Uh, Some states, it's prohibited. But 
some of the insurance companies are really doing some cracking down on it. And if you're out of network, there's no problem if your state law allows it. If you're in network, it's no problem as long as you didn't sign a provider agreement where you promised you wouldn't do it. I see. Because then you promise not to do it. And it so, and it is so if you come across that, you're in a contract negotiation phase and you come across that kind of clause, can you negotiate that out? I would try my best because it is something that is commonly done. I mean, it's just, it's easier. It's just simpler. Now, in that situation, does the lab then bill me as the physician? And then well, I pay them out of that money that gets reimbursed for that? In, How does that work? In the pass-through billing situation, the lab is going to bill the doctor. And then the doctor goes and bills the insurance company and, and gets gotcha. paid that way. Uh, and the other way, the lab bills directly. And, 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 and sometimes there will be you know, some in enhancements because the if if the lab is $500, but the doctor is spending time taking the sample and analyzing the results and doing all this stuff, you know, the doctor may bill $800 for the test because he spent a lot of time dealing with the test and doing a lot of stuff. So he may not bill the exact $500 the test costs he may bill that plus because he's done a lot of stuff. You know, it's uh, um, and, and in Georgia is perfectly legal. Uh, a, a question that came in uh, that was submitted to us. An insurance company recently demanded to see my CLIA license number when I billed for a test that I had ordered. Can they do this? And what are the rules? That's that's kind of the issue. That's how they're trying to find out if it's passed through billing or not. Um CLIA uh, license laboratories. Now, doctors can have a CLIA license, too, and a lot of doctor's offices do, but it's a different, it's not the advanced level. The advanced level of CLIA is what the laboratories have. The lesser level is what individual doctor's offices will have. And a doctor's office doesn't have to have any type of CLIA license, uh, CLIA certification, but some do. When they ask you that, they're suspecting that you're doing pass-through billing and they're looking for a way not to pay the claim. Or maybe to, they're doing an audit and they want to go back retroactively and demand money back on a bunch of claims. And we would certainly appreciate questions like that being submitted. And then, of course, MAG members can contact Susan Moore at smore, M-O-O-R-E, at mag.org for any kind of payment issue questions in addition to John here, obviously being somebody that is a great expert to go to for information. We've been talking with John Oxdine, former Georgia State Insurance Commissioner for 16 years here in the state, and obviously a practicing uh, attorney that uh, both works with physicians on payer issues as well as uh, acting as a consultant on a number of uh, health insurance payment type issues as well. And something that's been coming up around uh, some of our recent discussions, uh, particularly on our MAG episodes, is dealing with some of the very large mergers that have been proposed here that will affect the landscape of uh, commercial insurance options available to the residents of the state of Georgia. You you spent some time as insurance commissioner. Do you, do you care to opine on what we're facing there and where we might be able to go? Yes. Uh, I mean, what we have is we've really got the, you know, Aetna in the process of acquiring Cigna. Um, 
or Anthem, I think, acquiring Cigna, excuse me, uh, Aetna acquiring Humana. So really what you have is uh, United and Anthem kind of go back and forth as the largest health insurer in the country. I think United might be technically bigger. They're neck and neck. But you've got Anthem, the first or second largest health insurer, buying Humana, which is the fifth. You've got Aetna, which is the third largest, buying Cigna, which is the um, fourth largest. Uh, that is scary. In Georgia, one thing when I was insurance commissioner, I was very proud of the fact that we had great competition. There are only five national health insurance companies in the country. Now, you have local or regional health insurance companies, but only five big ones. I mean, that's United, Anthem. The Georgia Blue Cross plan is owned by Anthem. Uh, Anthem owns about 14 or so Blue Cross plans. They don't own them all, but they own a handful of them. And in Georgia, Blue Cross and Anthem are synonymous. So you got Georgia Blue slash Anthem. You got United. You got Aetna. You got Cigna. You got Humana. Those are the five big ones. After that, it's just, a you know, it becomes, That's they're nice guys. Dabbling but, into that narrow yeah. network space. And to take the five companies nationwide, the only five that we have that are national, and knock them down to three. Think about this. Think if you had five automobile makers and you knocked them down to only three choices. You know, I mean, you had three computer companies and you knocked it down to only three. I mean, it. it it's it's not good for competition. It's not good for the consumer. Now, these have to be approved by two different people. Uh, they have to be approved by the Justice Department, and the signals from the Obama administration has been, they're going to approve it. I mean, it seems to be pretty well greased. The uh, other is the insurance commissioners. In every state where these companies have a domestic, they're going to have to get approval. Georgia is one of those states where the current commissioner, uh, Ralph Hudgens, is the current insurance commissioner, he has to have a hearing and make a decision if he's going to approve these. If he doesn't approve it, it can't happen. And it can't happen in Georgia. And and the same in Florida and others. So it, it wouldn't take but a handful of large states, Georgia is one of those top 10 states, to say, no, the whole deal will go down nationally. If it's a little bitty small state says no, then you can still merge around it and just exclude that state. Right. Uh, but you're talking the Georgias, the Floridas, New York, California, Texas. You know, you get into big states, Ohio, three or four of them could kill the deal nationally. And, I, and I'd encourage people in Georgia and across the country to really reach out to their insurance commissioner because it's going to reduce competition. I have insurance with one of these two companies. I'll tell you, I mean, I have insurance with Humana. They're nice folks. But I don't necessarily want them bought by somebody else because now I can pick between all five companies. In the future, I'm only going to have three companies I can pick between. I don't like that. There's not very many situations I can think of where that ultimately really <laughs> fewer choices drives a good situation for the consumer on the other end. And, and in this case, we've got patients out there buying policies, which will have fewer choices prospectively, and we would have to trust the fact that any kind of efficiencies gained would be passed down to the other end, which I haven't seen a whole lot of retractions <laughs> in cost and insurance in the last little bit. But then on the other side of that, we also have 
the physicians that have to provide our care that also have to negotiate uh, a reimbursement contract with these companies. And if, I mean, you know, if I've got five I can deal with, well, then it doesn't necessarily kill my practice if I'm not contracted with maybe one of the other players. And that happens sometimes now. But but when we start talking about a third of the marketplace, that uh, that's a different picture. And the other thing is a lot of folks will say, well, that's America. And, and if you don't have enough choices, someone else will come out, the free market will work, and someone will form a new insurance company and, and pick up where there's a need. That happens with a lot of stuff. Major medical health insurance, there, nobody. I, Warren Buffett might have enough money to go from scratch and create a major medical health insurance <laughs> I don't company. know that he's going to do it. <laughs> he, well, he wouldn't. He, anybody that rich is generally too smart to do it. Right. But it, no one can just go and do a startup health insurance company. It would take so much money. And then you've got to get the networks. You've got to get a hospital network. You've got to get a laboratory network. You've got to get provider networks with physicians and surgeons and chiropractors and physical therapists. I mean, just think of how hard it is to put together that network. And it's not just a network in Atlanta. It's a network in Atlanta. It's one in Macon. It's one in every community in Georgia. And then every community in North Carolina and Tennessee and Texas and so on. It is it, it is just insurmountable that someone's going to form another startup major medical health insurance company and bring competition. It'd be easier to start to do a startup automobile company, you know, like a Tesla or something sure. to start competition than to start a do a startup major medical. Well, I'm hopeful that uh, the folks that listen to us, uh, particularly since we've got, I'm um, sure, many members for the Medical Association of Georgia that tune in to check out the content every once in a while. It'd be a good time to be getting in touch with our insurance commissioner to share our feelings about this, to weigh in. It Based on everything that I've heard, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to me to be the best thing for at least the state of Georgia, particularly when we're trying to fill voids in physician availability in rural areas, different things like that, that when we start compressing the networks down even tighter and limiting choices and limiting contracts, it would just seem like it's going to be that much harder for a patient out in very rural Georgia to get access to physicians if we really start tightening things up very significantly. So, well, I think the price will also go up for consumers. Um if you have the mergers. I mean, I'm part of it's just me being selfish. I'm a consumer. I buy health insurance. I want to keep my price as low as possible, and I think the price will go up. Now, something I, I was tickled to have a chance to sit down with you since you've spent some time as a commissioner of insurance in the state, something that uh, arose for, for us as a practice, we started at least exploring uh, the topic of concierge medicine mm-hmm. um, or direct pay medicine, however you want to call it. It's kind of uh, called by both uh, monikers uh, in different places, but where a physician charges a patient basically a monthly fee to be available to them 24-7. They get 24-7 access. They can call or write, text, email, whatever the case may be, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And in those cases, the physicians typically take probably a fifth sometimes uh, of the number of patients on board. They may have five or 600 patients versus 
three to 6,000 patients that they're trying to see in a typical primary care practice. And because of that, they're able to give these patients really high levels of attention and time each time they go there can really start focusing on a lot of preventive measures. I know a lot of these physicians tend to go down that path, a lot of wellness and a lot of prevention. But something that I would that I was told is that in the state of Georgia, that that is considered offering an insurance plan. You care to uh, shed some light on that? That, unless the current commissioner has changed uh, his position or changed the position of the department, I ruled on that when I was commissioner. And the ruling that we did was it was not the business of insurance if it was your personal service. So let's assume, CW, that you're a doctor and you say, for a fee, I will give you my personal services, that would not be insurance. Now, if you said, for a fee, I promise to fix your body whenever it breaks, and if I can't do it, I will get someone else to do it, that's insurance. Because think about what an insurance company is saying. The insurance company is not saying they're personally going to treat your body. They're saying when you get sick, somebody will fix your body, hopefully fix it, but treat your body, and they will pay someone to do it, whether it's a doctor, a hospital, whatever. Uh, so that's when you cross the line. If it's me, my personal services for my practice, that's not insurance. So if I'm, if I'm a doctor and I say, John, for $100... I'll be available for you for this next 30 days. Anytime you need me, I'll do your 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 exams. There's a, if you have you need stitches, you can come in. I'll that won't be any extra charge or it might be the cost of a kit for extra $10 to pay mm-hmm. for the suture kit, whatever the case may be, but but basically any of those services will be covered. You come in and, and I'll provide care for you with with very few exceptions. And you you know, uh, for example, I spoke with a physician out of Kansas who's been hosted on a local radio show, terrestrial radio here, uh, who provides this kind of care. And he's able to through negotiations with uh, local practices, say an ortho, uh, orthopedic practice, he he negotiated with them so that if his patient needs an X ray then he can send them over to their office and they'll do the x-ray for like $10. It's ridiculous for the low cost that they're able to negotiate. And the same kind of thing with pharmacy distributors where uh, particular medications that if I go to your typical prescription route, it costs several times what he's able to get these very large bulk quantities of medications for. And he just passes that to the patients for pennies, you know, basically. Yeah. And and so I'm very curious. It would seem that with all these changes in the insurance landscape, that there would be a lot of physicians, particularly in primary care, but I've heard that even in other specialties, that some of the other specialists are even starting to look at this kind of model. And I would think that if it's legal, that there would be more doctors that if they knew this might explore that option, or at least a hybrid between having some patients on that kind of relationship, but then also being able to work with insurance. I know some of them do that. And I, from what I've, I've learned, many of the insurers actually like this model, particularly for the primary care side, because a lot of those patients end up having better control of things like hypertension, their diabetic conditions, if they have that. A lot of their chronic conditions end up getting better just because they get such intensive care from their physician without increasing their cost. Yeah, yeah and the concierge works fine. Again, keep in mind, if if I'm the physician, I say, well, you need to see a specialist. Go see this guy. 
he'll cut you a deal because I referred you, that's fine. But if you say for that $100 fee, go see this other specialist and he's not going to charge you. I'm going to take care of it at a $100 fee. That's when you cross that line and become an insurance company. But what we're also seeing is, I mean, it's no secret, uh, deductibles are getting higher and higher. And there's an argument for someone who doesn't utilize health insurance a whole lot by a $10,000 deductible or something or, or higher. Have a relationship with a concierge doctor where you're getting a lot of that stuff taken care of, but you still got, after your ten dollars or $15,000 deductible, you still have coverage for that catastrophic event. Mm-hmm. You, know, you need massive surgery. You have a terrible event. You're going to be in the hospital. You do need insurance coverage for that catastrophic event. Um how you choose to take care of the day-to-day stuff works for different people, but do the math. Look at the quality of care you would get from a concierge. Look at the numbers and decide if that's what I need most of the time. I may pay for that out of my pocket and keep the insurance company just for the unexpected. And and that's not so unremarkable. Think of your car. You buy a car. The car insurance is for the unexpected catastrophic event, an accident. You buy tires, you rotate tires, you do an oil change, you do a tune-up. No one would ever expect car insurance to cover that stuff. That's the routine part of maintaining a car. Arguably, the routine part of maintaining a body should just be stuff that you pay for and the insurance is that collision that you have that's totally unexpected. Same with your house. You know, you do maintenance in your house all the time. Fire comes, tornado comes, knocks out your house, you've got the insurance. Now, if one of our physicians is somebody that wants to explore that model, is there a place for them to get information that they can know that they're touching the bases correctly, that they're structuring how they have it set up so that they're offering that kind of direct pay model? They don't have to deal with insurance and they can actually arrange rates directly with their patient for their care they're going to deliver. Is there a place that they can go? Where, where, where do they get good information about that? When I was commissioner, I do know lots of times doctors or doctors groups would come to our office and just say, hey, write it down. This is our plan. This is what we want to do. Just want to make sure the insurance department doesn't have a problem. And as I've described, we, we didn't have a problem. And I have, have not heard of the current commissioner taking any other position. Uh, we took the position that we felt was appropriate under the statute and under the law. So I mean, it's, it's, it never hurts to, you know, to go to the insurance department and run it by them and let them take a look at it and just make sure you're, you're good. And, and if you are a member of MAG or one of the um, physician or healthcare provider organizations out there, uh, lots of times those associations might also help you navigate that, you know. We've been I'm trying t- to volunteer them too much, but I do know they <laughs> hey, just well, do they, so they, many services for their They're for their always members. asking people to reach out to them, and we hope and encourage folks to do just that because we know we're going to get them to a great source of information and resources that will uh, make sure they get their answer um, from a good, credible source that uh, will be um, something that they can act upon. We've been talking with John Oxendine, and as I mentioned, he was Georgia State Insurance Commissioner from 1995 to 2011, and we've covered a lot of ground as it relates to 
getting reimbursed from commercial insurance payments um, for our physician providers. Are, are there any things out there that we've left uncovered that we want to try to get in here? We've got about 10 minutes left to go before I get you back to the practice. <laughs> well, you know, the key is you've got to really become a business person now. In the old days, you know, you could just concentrate on practice and medicine, and that's not the world anymore. Uh, physicians have got to be businessmen and women, and they've really got to look at how do they maximize their time and maximize the profit return on their time. And, you know, it may sound cold. It may not sound like the ideal thing you learned when you were in medical school, but it's the real world. And you've got to do that. And it, it's, it's, not, it's not your father's medical practice anymore. It's completely different. Uh, Keep in mind, when the insurance company tries to bully you and says they're not going to pay for it or we want money back and we're reversing charges, there are a lot of rights, especially if you got that paperwork from your client or from your patient. But make sure you do everything up front and dot your I's and cross your T's. And keep in mind, the insurance companies will lie to you. And Go uh, get a good assignment. Like I said, you can always reach out to me. I don't charge anything for just a general assignment form. I just give it to people. Um, It's a Word document. They got to format it and fill all their stuff in. But again, they can always reach me. uh, And it's jwolaw at gmail.com. And uh, always, always there to help people. I do it for folks all across the country. Website is oxendyinggroup.com for more information about the various services that John provides. If you're listening to us on the podcast and you look in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you over to the iTunes store and you can subscribe to the podcast. That way, every week, you're going to get the newest uh, episode downloaded straight to your device. It'll be there ready for you on your way to work or walking the dog, whatever the case may be. And we're really pleased because beginning in January, we're going to go from once a month having the folks from Medical Association of Georgia joining us in the studio. They'll be here every second and fourth Tuesday of the month talking about issues important to the physicians and patients in the state of Georgia. So I'm really excited to expand on the partnership that we've had with MAG over the past year and be able to bring you even more information. It's a critical time where we need to really be smart consumers, whether we're the provider dealing with um, insurance companies and Medicare and all the, the the payers that we have to deal with, to the patients that we hope to really be able to educate on a variety of issues they need to be aware of, whether it's narrow networks or uh, how insurance affects them and these changes that are afoot that could really significantly change the landscape. Uh, so for uh, John, I really appreciate you making time to the folks over at Medical Association of Georgia, Donald Pomizano, Tom Cornergay, Susan Moore, and all the folks over there. We really appreciate you. And to uh, all the folks who made us a part of their day today, we want to say thanks so much. We really appreciate your time and respect it greatly. If you can, turn around and share this information with your social networks. You may just put some information in the hands of somebody that's important to you that really makes a difference in their life. Obviously, some of the topics we covered today it could really be a five, six, seven figure difference that you make for somebody just by sharing a piece of information about a, a simple document that could really save a, a significant a disaster for a, a practice. So we hope you turn around and share it. And uh, we look forward to having the folks from MAG join us second Tuesday of January, and then we'll be getting on with them going down the road. So, uh, John, thanks again. Well, it's been wonderful to be here. I've really enjoyed it. Everybody out there, we'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 